out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Scottish singer-songwriter, guitarist. It is the one and only Bobby Bluebell, or I think that's his stage name, probably. Um, but it's uh, Robert Hodgins, who I spoke to to find out more about the whole world that is creativity and also songwriting. Worked with the Bluebells, yes, that big hit, Young at Heart, but also, or still probably works with Texas, but has written for the likes of Sinead O'Connor, Bewitched, who we love, Texas. Did I mention Texas? Well, I don't know. This is going to be like the generation game, isn't it? But look, you'll get the gist. He's written for everybody. Just about. Um, so this is the interview. So look, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the exciting subject that was the early formative years. Bobby, take it away. I think it was, I mean, I started pretty young, maybe eight or nine, so it was like pretty much pop music. I remember things like uh, Freedom Come, Freedom Go, but I think it was the Fortunes that did that, and I think I'm not too sure, you know. And yes. it was um, Yellow River and songs like that, you know. Um, Love Grows. When my rosemary goes, that that was all kind of like primary school for me, you know. And then yeah. when I got into into secondary school, it changed into things like, uh, I guess, your deep Alice Cooper's and your deep purples were all all came on the scene, you know. And you obviously Bowie and Mick Ronson and things. I went to yeah. my first concert when I was about thirteen. What year was that? Was, uh, that was Elton John. I think I first first one I went to first concert. Yes, I know. <laughs> because um, I suppose, yeah, I had a, no, I wouldn't say similar, but there was kind of the excitement of seeing, you know, sort of, I suppose, a bit of T-Rex, but it was kind of people like Alice Cooper's School, so, which I think was 73, and then it was kind of The Sweet and Gary Glitter, I Want to Be in Gary's Gang so badly. Um, but luckily, David Bowie was my first single and my first love, and we stuck together right to the end, which was kind of amazing. I, so I saw him in 1973. Pardon? I saw him in 1973 at the when he was still Ziggy. We we went to see him at Green's Playhouse. Blimey! How old were you then? I probably about 73, born 59, 13. Well, no, I 14. Right, blimey! So were you were you from a musical family at all? No, not at all. My, my father worked in the shipyards, and my mother was an Italian. She was like a just a housewife. She wasn't really. Music. She she bought me records from the cafe. You used, used to get jukebox records. When the when the jukebox emptied out, the, the cafe guy would sell the records for a few pennies. Yeah. So, so she bought me them at the start, you know. But it was quite a random collection. Adam Faith and things like that sort of stuff, and uh, Dusty Springfield and things, you know. Well, classic, classic pop. Yeah. So then, so then, were you? I mean, with the Glasgow, you know the Glasgow scene. What was it yeah. like at that point? Because I think this is where people like Alex Ferguson was uh, brought up, wasn't he? And um, I, yeah, yeah. I didn't meet him until he did Orange Juice. I mean, I, I, I was a big ATV fan. We all were, you know, like uh, Love Lies Limp, I think was the first one. It was a flexi disc we all had. And then I remember when Postcard were suggesting getting Alex to do a Blue Boy, I think it was. It was a real kind of like, you know, quite a big step up to actually think of having a producer who was in a famous band, you know, so that was a real, a real kind of like, you know, boost for all, everybody's morale at the time. Well, absolutely. So as the 70s progressed and you went to see Elton John, did yeah. you sort of slip into that next world that was people like Alex Harvey and then sort of the punk it, scene? It, that... there, was a, there was a pub rock scene in Glasgow. Alex Harvey was famous in that, but I did, I mean, I saw Alex Harvey again at the, he was famous at the, at the Apollo, but I wasn't really going to gigs. I mean, I was going to gigs, but not going to pubs because underage drinking, you know. We tried pubs, but we never got served to go get out, you know. <laughs> yes, and what was it? And what was it like as the decade progressed? Because you mentioned Deep Purple, which was kind of the introduction introduction of, of heavy metal, and there was Black Sabbath, obviously, and then the world that was Led Zeppelin that came along. But then, you well, know, there was you mentioned, kind of, yeah. You mentioned glam rock. I mean, it's funny because first time. I saw a punk man was a, uh, I was into, I mean, already newspapers, sounds, you know, enemy and things. So we knew what punk was going on. It was quite exciting. But the first punk band anybody really saw was the Damned, supporting T-Rex, you know. Right. 
and uh, it was very few. It was punks in Glasgow, but mostly it was double denim in Glasgow. You know, it was a lot a lot of states co fans would, would became punks. You know, but it didn't change the clothes. You know, That's so right. when you went when you went to see the Clash the first time in seventy seven, it, it was basically states co fans. You know, it, and a smattering of punks. You know, but thing is, it, it wasn't. They didn't want. We didn't. We didn't really take the clothes. Didn't really appeal to us as much as the music. You know. It was more, Glasgow was very much duffel coats and cord jackets and, you know, and denim, you know, it was a different kind of like, um, it's a hard city to dress up in, you get beaten up, you know. Yes, I know, I could imagine. Well, it's interesting yeah. you mentioned status quo, because out of all the bands, because I come from Norwich and the East Anglian region, which wasn't, yeah. let's face it, an amazing music city. I mean, we had a lot of gigs here, but we didn't have... Armour Boys, we're not from there. The Farmers Boys, <laughs> I know, yeah. great. Um, there was the Farmers Boys, the Higsons, and Serious Drinking of the early 80s and a few other bands you wouldn't have heard. But it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was like bustling with local bands like some places. You were, you know, Cherry, Cherry Red Records couldn't put out a compilation now of Norwich bands and make much money. In fact, they couldn't, you know, like a few years ago, they brought out one on Manchester, which was seven CDs, and one on Liverpool, five, and they did one on Sheffield and et cetera. And, uh, and I also think they did a Scottish one as well, didn't they? They did really on that, yeah. That was another seven or... That was so another one. CD, so yeah, yeah, I mean, so so we didn't, we didn't have an amazing, but Status Quo were the band that you wouldn't ever, you wouldn't mi mi mess with a status quo fan or fans because they would beat you up. I mean, they were the one of the bands that would really, their fan was was incredibly loyal to the band and Denim, yeah. obviously. So what, what was it like, for, just curious actually, what was a status quo fan like from Glasgow? Were they much different? It's, well, like I said, it's all, everything they wore was Denim, you know? <laughs> you know, like, and they were covered in patches, but they were young, they were dead young. You could knock them for it. I mean, everyone at school, from about say 13 to 17, went to school with LPs in Glasgow, you know, or, or they swapped LPs or they met in houses and played LPs. So our tastes were very Catholic, you know, they were, they were very varied from like billion dollar babies to, you know, tales of topographic oceans, you know, there was, you, you, you quickly developed your own taste, but you were open to listen to everything at first, you know, to yes. find your own taste, because you didn't have a taste back then, you, you were just immersed in it, you know. Yeah, it was quite tribal though. I mean, topographic oceans was quite far right. I did get it for Christmas when I was quite young because I had. I didn't like it. I mean, you know, I mean, I actually quite liked the first Yes album. There's some really good songs on that. Yes, well, I thought. Yeah, they ended up playing on Lou Reed's album, didn't they? They did the first Lou Reed album, but basically it was Yes, Steve Stevie Howe and Rick Waitman, you know, and then they wanted to play with Punkadori too. So you got to give them credit somewhere along the line. Yes, Rick does appear on various uh, David yeah. Bowie moments before um, before he got Mick Ront and Mick Garson involved. So you were yeah. sort of the basically you were born in '59. Right? Okay, yeah. I'm going through some date of birth here. But um, so you know, people like Alan McGee, 1960. You know, East Kill yeah, Drive. Yeah. So you were you? Yeah, did you? Did, had, did your did your paths or at least your aura? Did they did they cross at any of these stages in the seventies? Yeah, all the time. All the time, I had a fanzine, so I, I met Alan really early on, and Bobby, Bobby was part of our scene, he was like, we, we, we were kind of like Altered Images came up at the start, you know, Bobby worked for, well, Bobby was with Altered Images all the time, and Alan was in a band called H2O, then you speak, laugh and apple, so I saw him all the time, you know, I still see Alan anyway, but, uh, but Glasgow's a, Glasgow's a, is, is a big city, but the scene's very, very small, there's maybe about 100 people tops, so you saw them all the time. You saw them every night you went out, you know? Yes, well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and there was a lot of, was there a very, oh God, my brain's gone a bit, really. Yeah. But there was a very young band, wasn't there, who, were they from Scotland, the, the Pratts? I think they... Pratts, they were from Edinburgh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that, I, I, think, I think they were in Inverness, in fact. They, they, they weren't part of our thing, though. We knew who they were, but, but they weren't part of our, they weren't Glaswegian. Yes. So, so did you feel then there was a, there was kind of with with the the characters that you were sort of hanging out with that there was kind of something that was happening in Glasgow that, that yeah. seemed exciting. Yeah, straight away from the very first first minute, it was exciting. And what was it? What was your sort of moment where you formed your first band? Well, like I said, I was I was friends with all the images, and then um, their manager said you should start a band and then he drove me to this church where there was a band you know like basically it was it was uh, their friends and they 
and we were supporting all of the images the following week, he said, so we, to, we better start rehearsing. So that was basically how it began. Yes, that yeah. was quite something. You took a risk there with that manager. Well, he, he's a great manager. He's, he, he, he manages all the images and he, and he manages Primal Scream, you know. So he, he started off there and I became friends with the postcard, kind of like um, scene and we kind of switched. When I started, I started the Bluebells and we were kind of like associated with, with a postcard mostly. Yes, well, this is quite interesting because you have that punk scene, which, and obviously most scenes only last a few years before they get really like tacky, and then that post punk, and then you know the indie world started, and obviously in '79 Thatcher gets in, so there's a huge amount of yeah. divide in the country and and a lot of unemployment. And I remember that time, you know, a lot of people were just thinking, oh, "I'll just go unemployed." You know, it wasn't a sort of a bad thing in the sense of feeling sort of you know, like somehow you'd failed, well, you had failed a bit <laughs> if you're working class, but at the same time, you know, you didn't feel like there was some stigma of guys signing on, and there was like the enterprises allowance schemes and stuff like that, and that kind of the birth of indie pop was quite exciting. I, I sort of was just about getting to that age where I became much more aware of it, even from Norwich. So, um, yeah, so what was it like for you during that sort of, that the new decade, the 80s? It, it is, it was, it was a, it's, you could try to squeeze by them. My girlfriend's just sorry. Uh, the eighties, seventies were the, the eighties were like, like I said, we we the fans in it did really well called Ten Commandments, and that got us into the it got us to work with the enemy and things like that kind of stuff. But by that point, I started a band, the Bluebells, which again, like I said, was kind of like part of the postcard thing. So we were playing with Orange Juice and Nash Tech Camera a lot, and and then we ended up playing with. Haircut 100 and Elvis Costello pretty quickly, you know, and, and then we ended up getting signed. So that's how it, it, it happened all kind of like the space of two years, really. Yes, absolutely. And did you find, you know, because obviously, you know, most people are in a band, they don't play beyond their kind of friends and family and anybody else they can um, <laughs> um, blackmail to go and see them. So, so did you suddenly find, you know, that kind of sudden play and suddenly being able to elevate to the next level, did that come together quite, you know, smoothly? Yeah. We, did, we, had, we, had, we hadn't really played our instruments before, before that the band, but once you start practicing every day and, and the adrenaline carries you along, you know, I mean, if you're going to play a gig support in Orange, you better be good, you know? Yes. And what was it like, that, that whole world of postcard records and Alan Horn and um, Orange Juice? Well, it, it was exciting. It was, I worked with Alan for a long time, you know, we did Paul Quinn and the Independent Group eventually, which is coming out again soon. It's just different because, like I said, it's only two years and then all of a sudden you're in London and you're on a major, you know, and, and same for Orange Juice, same for Nice Take Camera. So you kind of like end up, you know, going around the world and, and meeting in different places, but you never quite have the same togetherness. I mean, we used to spend every day together, you know, you know, so... It's just, it's, I guess it's just like leaving school, you know, you're at school for a bit and then you're at uni for a bit and you're in a, then you're in a band for a bit and then you're on your own for a bit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know, going, but you know? it, it's it's just that sort of sense that because I've got indie pop between the years of 83 to 87, which is the years of the Smiths, you know, and there was definitely a golden period before that you'd had a few bands. And most people I've interviewed, you know, they often talk about three really important groups at that time, you know, the Smiths. The June Bride and Orange Juice uh, as kind of being really influential, and obviously there was definitely a sound there, which wasn't like Jesus and Mary Chain and and sort of that kind of scene that must have been happening in Glasgow because of you know the, you know the band were basically from there. So did you yeah. sort of feel a sort of a quick affinity to that world that was jingly jangly pop? Well, we didn't mean to be jangly pop. We just wanted to write write good. So it was all about song right now. We were talking about the songs. You know, and all we ever talked about was guitar. So I don't think it was like, I mean, it's a hard one. Um, you don't really give it thought. You have to go on your intuition. You know, you don't really, I don't think being in a band is a plan. I think it just, it just happens. Yes. It's quite interesting though, because because obviously, you know, occasionally, and this doesn't only happen to very occasionally, you have the big hit, don't you, which is quite phenomenal, which is your sort of, 99 red balloons or your um men at work down under yeah. did did that sort of 
was that quite a freaky experience suddenly having something that just took off so much? Not because you, we did expect it. That's a strange thing, you know, like, I mean, it's funny, all the bands we ever met, like, we all expected to be successful, you know, and I think most of them were, but you, and you go down to London and you, I mean, you're hanging about with the Bunny Men and Pale Fountains. You don't think of them as being the Bunny Men or Pale I mean, our guitar player joined the Smiths, Craig, you know, so we, to us, it's just the Smiths. I mean, it wasn't like, it, it wasn't like you're thinking, oh, that they're the most fantastic thing in the world, you know, you just, they were just a really good, they're really good people, you know, so that's, that's what you, you kind of like, latch on to, you know. Yeah. And you're... Were you in a band yourself? No, my God, unfortunately, I'm just one of those frustrated people who just kind of think it must have been marvellous. Until I've done all these interviews, no, but I... <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> it's marvellous, but what you remember, funny enough, is is being in hotels together and travelling together and, you know, and, and meeting pubs or or being like say Chicago and meeting somebody you didn't expect to see there you know who you knew these are all the things that 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 you kind of remember you know and then you remember the the recording sessions and the, the things the gigs are kind of like blurs you know because if you're doing a lot of gigs you know it's it's only an hour an hour and a half it's that's a little part of your day you know the rest of the day is what you remember Yes, well, I remember, I think it was the guy from the Wooden Top said that, you know, it's hell really being on the road, but you have that 90 minutes on stage, which is fantastic, but the rest of the time, you know, it's just kind of not feeling that great, and eventually you just kind of grow to hate that well, experience. We, 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 were the opposite. We, we loved being on stage, but we loved all the other bits. We loved, <laughs> all, all the, we loved going to TV studios, or we loved arriving in Sunderland, you know what I mean? Or we loved... Stopping at what we said, we loved all the bits because we such a, we just had a laugh the whole time, you know. It wasn't really like all of it was exciting for us. All of it. Yes. So look, young at heart. Okay, I mean, I expect yeah. everyone's asked you this question. Well, thank you. But so, just what's the history? Did you, you know, it's a song that's originally done by Banana Rama, isn't it? Well, not. I mean, I wrote it with my girlfriend at the time. We just we were. I was in the Bluebells, and we. She was trying to write. She wanted to try and write some songs, you know. And then that that was just from watching the film Young at Heart because my dad loved that film. And I wrote a song about my dad, you know. So they they, they did it. We we were, we were doing it live before they recorded it, you know. So just that they recorded it before us. Right, I've got it. And your girlfriend at the time was Siobhan from the Banana Banana Rama. Banana Rama, right? My God, you yeah. were you're already mixing in fantastic circles. Were Banana Rama very big? Because I don't know much about Banana Rama. Yeah, they, they just brought, when I met her, they just brought out a band called, a song called Shy Boys. So they were really, they just did work with Fun Boy 3, you know, they did, uh, they did a lot of hits, yeah. Yeah, blimey. And were you still based in Glasgow at that stage? Yeah, she just, I'm, I, yeah, we, I met her, she came to see us at a gig and we just got on really well. My God, I wish I was in a band then. But, <laughs> <laughs> sounds very showbiz. Then, so you, you write this song, and then how does it develop? Because there's quite a history to this, isn't there? Because you have, you know, you have the famous guy from the uh, the Fabulous Poodles appears as well, doesn't he? he? He was a session guy on it, yeah. Yes. So when, was that part of the original session that you had, dear old Bobby? No, he, he, we got him, he was only there for nine minutes. We did the song in Inverness with um, a guy called uh, Colin Fairley. We were working with Elvis Costello at the time, he was producing us. And then we did some songs on our own up, up in, in Scotland, that was one of them. And then we came down and we put the fiddle on it. Yes, and did that, um, I mean, that's kind of, well, has that been something that you've just had a kind of a millstone around your neck because there was all that kind of stuff with the no. songwriting credits or was that just something that is just what happens in the world that is showbiz happens the thing is he i mean i think he was just desperately i think he was just skint you know so i mean i think i mean it's like has has we always say in the business how many other hits has he written you know <laughs> how many right before that i mean that's that it, 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 it's like i, I mean i'm lucky to be people like bob dylan you know I wish Bob Dylan is suited because most of the song is, is inspired by Bob Dylan, you know, but Bob Dylan always says he didn't sue anybody because that's what songwriting is songwriting, you know? Yes, and I guess, I mean, you know, everyone... Like, the, the strange thing about that is, how could that song be recorded before we even met him 
right? It was recorded by Dan Ram before we even met him. So what, we didn't even know who he was. So how, how, what, what's he got to do with writing it? <laughs> yes. So you must have suddenly become an, not an expert, but some some experience of what it's like to be dragged through the courts with it, those sort of well, experiences. We had, it, we had it before. We had it when the Bluebells got sued by the Bluebell girls from um, Paris because they, they thought the name clashed. We won that one. We went, that went to the High Court. They said that we, we couldn't use the name Bluebells because he'd already used it. You know, but the judge threw that one out because they, they were naked girls and we were dressed boys. Yes. Well, that's... <laughs> so then... You know, God, that's that's kind of exciting. I mean, did that did that have much of an effect on your mental health having to deal with all that kind of world? Are you kidding? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> why? Why would it? Well, I suppose being taken to court and thinking, oh God, you know, you know, having to be there, and you know, I read Morrissey's book once, and he goes into great detail about this court case. So I just wondered if it was a bit like a same thing that you had to sort of go through and deal with. It was a big part. I mean, it's a tiny part of your life, you know? I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, like, it, it, it's like, I mean, I've, I've, I've had lots of hits, do you know what I mean? You know, so, I mean, and I know lots of people who've had, I mean, no hits, so what you got to complain about? So, I mean. <laughs> yes, well, absolutely. And then it's the decade, because that was kind of on your the, the first album, which was titled Sisters, which was on London Records. And obviously it makes a huge, you know, impact. But at this stage, was it just like the, did you, had you given up your day jobs or sort of stop signing? I didn't have a day job. <laughs> yes, and then and then how did you sort of cope with that initial kind of impact and success? Just had a great time. <laughs> I, don't know what else to say. I mean, I don't know anybody who doesn't have a great time in a band. Like I said, I mean, what would you rather be doing? Yes, but then how did you sort of? What happens next after this kind of massive kind of experience and, and album and hit singles and sort of television and tours? I mean, what, what happens for the rest of the 80s for you? The rest of the 80s? Well, I, I'm trying to think. I, I mean, I ended up writing with lots of different groups. You know, that's what happens. And then you, you think we have to, it's really hard to keep hits going for a long, long time, you know? Most bands get dropped. Lloyd Cole got dropped, Taurus just got dropped, Aztec Camera got dropped. Everybody gets dropped in the end because another, another whole batch of bands come in, you know? That's, yes. That's us, us, fickle, us fickle fans, you know, are always looking for the next. It's just it's just the way, it's like, we, I mean, we've been talking about people like Status Quo and Yes, I mean, but very few bands get to be Status Quo or Yes. Most bands are, like I mentioned before, you know, Christie and, you know, Yellow River and, if we had one hit, I would be happy. I mean, all we, all we, all I ever wanted was to have one hit. You know, it's like being in the cup final. You don't, you don't plan. I mean, I've, I've been doing music now since, what, I'll probably be forty years now. Who'd have thought? I never thought it'd be forty years doing, doing music. You know. Yes, and as an artist, how did you? And how was you? And as an artist, how were you developing as well? Your, um, your general sort of skill, your songwriting, and your, you know, creativity. I don't think you can develop it. I think you just write a song. song. I've just did a song with Texas and the Wu-Tang Clan. You know, um, I mean, I never thought I'd be working with the Wu-Tang Clan, you know. No. But that's, that's exciting, you know what I mean? And then never thought I'd be working with people like Sinead O'Connor and the Rhythmics or, you know, or, but, but you end up doing it, you know. So these are, these are, that's, that's what, what happens. That's just, you just go on the road and you just go, you, you just, do one step at a time, you know. Yeah. You go whatever it leads you. Did you then sort of become? I mean, did the Bluebells have a moment where you decided, in the words of Jim Morrison, to call it the end? Not really. No, Ken. Ken, we were at the very end. London Records kept me on. I ended up working for Pete Tong, doing a bit of being Aaron, and I, I was a DJ, so I was doing a lot of dance stuff. I was working with Shakespeare's sister and things, and then. Um, Ken and David, the two other guys in the band, they they were they made four folk albums together, you know, as the Klusky Brothers. But we've always we never split up. We've, we've always played some. We've always played gigs, and there's always festivals, and there's always you know um, uh, gigs to do, you know. And then we had a number one again, nineteen ninety three, with the Volkswagen advert thing, you know. And so you just go on that path. At that point, I was working with Texas anyway, and and like I said, uh, Dave Stewart a lot. So you never really give it any thought. You just go along, you know. 
Yes. And how did you sort of, how did you sort of, well, they must have found you because they knew of you, but how did it, how did it sort of pan out with working with Texans? Because they obviously hit big in the 90s. Well, they were my friends from all the images, you know, so it's just natural progression, you know. I worked with them for since 19, since 1993, in fact, ninety four. So um, that's another quite long period of time. So it's just songwriting, you know. You we live in the same city. We we, we trust each other, you know. If if they like the song, we do it, and they don't like it, then they don't do it, you know. Or whatever I do, same any songs you do. I mean, a lot of us have done it, you know, like. Uh, Justin from Delamitri, I've went to write with other people and Ricky Rosses, you know, you, you, your publisher, you know, you can you can go down that route if you want to write songs. I mean, I did Bewitched, for instance, and I did, you do, you do people, I did, uh, I wrote a song with Brian Wilson, for instance, you know, right, for his daughter's band, you, but you don't, none of it's planned, you, it, it, it just, it just turns up, you know, and you go along with it. Yes. So what was, because working with the witch, who we all remember from the 90s, God, did they move quickly on top of pop, didn't they, oh, yeah. with their dance routine. How did you, I mean, is it, how do you get that particular gig? Sorry? How did you get that particular gig then, working with the witch? They just ask you to write a song for them. <laughs> you know, the producer does it, you know, they say, if you get, you know, they, can you come in to jump the studio and, you know, we'll, we'll do a song together. And this is Jesse, Jesse Hold On. Yeah. Yeah, my God, you just, um, so, I mean, the creativity never dried up with, or doesn't, hasn't dried up with you at all, has it? Well, you, you, it, it, yeah, of course, it, everybody, but what, what happens is, is you fly down, you, what you do is you, you get a phone call and you say, come down a couple of days time, you think, okay, I'll write something. I, you don't write anything. Then you get the plane, you think, I'll make something on the plane. You don't do anything on the plane. Then you get in the taxi and you think, I'll make up something in the taxi. You don't do anything in the taxi. And then you get into the studio and then they see if you got anything. And then in that three seconds, you make up something. <laughs> because, because you've got to make up something, otherwise they're going to say to you, well, they aren't going to give you another chance. So you've, you've kind of got to do it. Sometimes it's nerve-wracking and embarrassing. Most times it's embarrassing because, I mean... But other times, within, the thing is, it's like, um, it isn't that, songwriting isn't that hard, I don't think, but, but production and, and see what you've got to do is, is, is you have to try and understand who you're, who you're working with, you know, and what they want, you know, so I think that's, the, the, all they want is a hook, you know. Basically, and you've got something like Sheila Connor, she doesn't want a hook, she just wants a really good song, you know. And then when she sings it, you can write a song, I did a song with Sheila Connor, and I swear to God, I could have cried the whole, from the minute she sang it, I started singing it till the end, because this is because I, I love the song so much, it's because there's someone who's take, taken something that you've done and took it into a whole different level. I mean, have you heard... Have you, have, it's a great song, the one that uh, the Prince song, you know, uh, you know, uh, nothing compares to you, right? Yes. He makes it a world class, fantastic song. She does it, not him. She does it. Well, she absolutely. It. I mean, you know, when that came, because I was quite a Prince fan in the late eighties and very early nineties, and um, I didn't really know that song at all. And then when it came out, we all sort of couldn't yeah. quite hear it and think it was great. I mean, his version is all right, but her version is extraordinary. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's one thing I've, I've I've learned. I think we've all learned is when you're in the studio and, and you've got your headphones on and you're singing to microphone. If you get a tingle, you're doing the right thing down your spine. But if you don't get a tingle, you should just stop doing it. You know, and wait till you get a tingle. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And does that really mean hard. does that mean that um, with your life? in the world that is, you know, songwriting, that you've managed to sort of keep it together and, and not lose lose the plot at all? Well, I don't know, but the thing is, this, you don't know the highs unless you have lows, but I mean, the lows, the lows aren't really low, if you get my drift. And also, the, the, the thing about, about it is, you know, you, you have to be lucky, right? Luck, luck gets you into the studio, right? But then you have to, you have to be good, because if you're not good, no one's going to use it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Right? You know, 
I mean, I did songs with people like Brian Ferry. No, no one ever hear them because they weren't. They weren't. He didn't think they were any good. So I think they were good. They, but they, so it's not a song to me. It's not. It's not a song till it's a record you can buy. And I meet people all the time. They say, "Oh, I've got 40, 40 songs." I just think, "What? Where are we? Show me." I mean, they're not forty songs. You know, they're not. There's nothing till you have something. People can put in their head, you know, a piece of plastic or a CD or a download or a band playing it, you know. I mean, they don't exist until yeah. someone else is listening to it, you know. I mean, and you're not there, it has to exist without you being there. Does that make any sense? You know, it's not a song till someone in, in some other land can press a button and listen to it. Have, yeah. you got, have you got a song in your head and just your head? It's nothing. Absolutely. And do you, I mean, I mean, have you been over the decades curious with other songwriters, you know, like people like David Bowie doing his cut-ups, you know, the work of other, you know, writers like William Burroughs? Has, has any of that, you know, seeped into your sort of DNA at all? No, but what, what seeped into your DNA is David Bowie, you know? I mean, what seeped into your... See, the thing is, I do believe that when you're 12 or 13, all the songs you're ever going to write in the future are already... In your head, you know. I know. Without when I picked up a guitar first time, you know, what I played instinctively was, it, "You look kind of funny. Your hair's a kind of funny. Your curls are kind of wild and free." That was already in my head, you know. Or sugar, da 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 da, da because those were the songs that my, my brain was all connecting up with the ones that I heard and made me feel fantastic, you know. So, yeah. All those songs, you know, like I remember one song in particular. Um, I don't know what it was at the time, but it was Four Tops singing a song called "Simple Simple Games," "Simple Game" by Moody, Moody Blues B-side, right? Mm. I remember being, hearing that, thinking like an uncle's car or something, and thinking this is the greatest song I've ever heard in my, in my whole life. But, I, but I've had that feeling maybe a thousand times from a thousand other songs. So all those thousand other songs are in my head, wait to come out in a different form, mutating, like the COVID virus, into my <laughs> song. I mean, the thing is, it isn't just me. I mean, the good thing is, if you talk to people like Dylan and Bonos and things, they're always at the same thing. They love music, you know? So, every, I mean, I don't do it so much now because I've got children, right? But I used to spend the whole day, the whole day with the same song on, you know, on my record player, we drop the record down, play it, come back up again, and then go back down again. The same song all day, a different song every day, but the same song, you know, I had no reason, I mean, I, don't, I had no idea why I could listen to it a hundred times in a row, but I did, and it never got, it never got boring and never annoyed me. The ones that annoyed me didn't, never happened again, you know? All yeah. the records I've got now, none of them annoy me, but the, but, but the ones that did annoy you, like, one that really annoyed me a lot at the time was um, was uh, Al Green tired of being alone, right? You know, I used to think, why is he singing it like that? Now I can't, I can't get enough of it. I mean, like, you know, I still think, why is that guy going? I'm so tired of being alone. I was thinking, what? Why is he singing it in that voice? Why doesn't he just sing it in a normal voice, right? And then you think, that's why you love it. It's because he's he's doing that. Edwin Collins is a good example. I remember, I love Edwin's voice. Edwin is absolutely pinnacle, I mean, I mean, so important in my life, right? But I can remember his record company saying you'll never have a hit with that voice. You know, well, he proved them all wrong, didn't he? You know? Oh, yes. Yeah, well, so the thing is, no one knows. They can't, record companies can only, only guess. It's, they don't know it's going to be a hit. They knew it was going to be a hit. They'd have hits all the time, wouldn't they? But they have, they have more flops. They have more flops than hits. They, they, you can guess. You know, but what this, the songs that matter to you doesn't matter to the hit. It, it, it's just something that connects with you. You know, I mean, I don't. I, I, it's like I can't think of a bad song. Sometimes that's the problem. You know. What was that? You said I you think of a bad song. People say, "What's the worst song you've ever heard?" I can't think. I can only think of the of the of the best songs I've ever heard. Do you know what I mean? I always think it's a strange question. You know, what bands don't you like? What? I, doesn't, I, I can't get my head around that question, you know? Why would I think about bands I don't like, you know? Yeah, that is a strange question. <laughs> I mean, it's always something. I mean, it must have been when you talk, uh, singing that particular song, Rosemary, 
the Rosemary one. Yeah, I, I keep thinking of um, Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap, which has got I its love that song too. I think that's one of the best songs I've ever had in my life as well. It, you was, know? it, was, it was an instant classic, really, and um, it, it still holds fond memories. Bizarrely, there was a compilation record that came out in the very late 80s called Elvin Lives in Leeds. It was a it was an anti-poll tax record, and they, and uh, a lot of those songs were covered by artists like Lush and Robin Hitchcock and yeah. Cud and people like that. So um, yes, you'll have to go and, go and check it out. But what was interesting, okay, because I was obsessed in the 80s with Morrissey and the Smiths, and I thought his lyrics were stunning, right? And I thought, you know, they were just the most incredible poetry for music. But then over yeah. decades, I've sort of, his solo work, obviously there's the other side, which is a bit tricky, but, you know, lyrics don't seem to have that kind of quality that they had. Somehow the lightness, they were a bit clunky. I mean, do you, when you look at your inner body of work, do you see periods where you think, God, that was quite nice, everything sort of was quite chirpy, you know, kind of flowed quite well, and other bits where you're just thinking, hmm, not quite sure about that period. No, I, I love them all. I mean, it's like, it's like people don't like Sting, right? I, I, I'd, Sting, I don't mind them one way or the other, right? But he said a great thing once. He said, if you, if you slag off my songs, it's like saving my life's ugly, you know? So that's 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 how important songs are to the people who write them. You know, you, you can't write an average song. I mean, it might be a crap song or an average song. I don't know. It's up to the listener. But you can't. You don't do it on purpose. You, you always try and write the best thing you can. And you, you are emotionally at, attached to your songs. So you... So uh, don't take insults lightly, you know, you don't take, you, uh, you can be really upset if someone says that's shit, you know. It's, <laughs> well, it would be, it would be quite harsh to say that to someone, yeah, yeah. really. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, that's one of the things that sometimes you think. Well, you get it a lot, so that's one thing you learn, you learn to, you have to take that on, on board is, is the fact that it's all subjective. I mean, if, if I go along, right, to meet someone and, and like, to work with someone, and they think the song isn't good, all you can do is just say, well, nice meeting you and move, and, and move on, you know, because a lot of times I work with people, I don't, I don't want to work with them within 10 minutes of meeting them, you know. So, yes, well, that's cool. And it isn't, and it's, that's just, it's just nature, you know, it's just the, the way, you have to have a kind of connection, you know. And also, what I was going to say, because we mentioned Mr Bowie earlier, <clears throat> and then sort of seeing his decades of different bodies of work, and then he came at the end with Black Star. When you look at him, when you sort of see what he's done and, and the narrative of his life, does that sort of also give you sort of inspiration of like where you're still able to go to further down the line? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I can't, you can't even mention the insane line as Barry. I mean, Barry's strange, strange. I, I read a lot about Barry, you know, Barry really wanted to make it and, and he would, he would, he would steal a lot of his songs, you know, he was, there's a lot of like, um, um, influences, which I think is great, you know, everybody I've ever met in my whole life has no qualms about it, you know, it isn't, it isn't stealing or anything, it's just being inspired, right, you know, like, it's like, i tell you my, my, my favourite example, right, see when you were a living, right, and you went, you went to play football, you know, you always said, I'm going to be Jeff Hurst, or I'm going to be Jimmy Johnston, or I'm going to be, you know, that, George, George that, right? so we, we missed that out, I wanted to be Roger McGuinn of the birds, right? Or I wanted to be in the monkeys, right? That's okay, isn't it? You know, right? I wanted, my, I wanted to write one song my whole life, which which was the last trip to Clarksville. I thought if I could just write a song as good as that, I'll I'll be completely happy, right? You know, I wouldn't. So the, so now as you get older, you kind of like want to be recognised for being a good songwriter. Well, you know what you. you it's a waste of time, isn't it? I mean, look at Matt, Matt Bowling, right? Matt Bowling once wrote a song, you know, what's it like to be a loon? I liken it to a balloon. <laughs> now, that's either the worst lyric in the world or the best lyric in the world, isn't it? Right? Yes, but it's one that you've always held. But, it's one you've remembered. Yeah, the thing is, that's what you've got to do. You've got to be like Matt Bowling and not give up about what other people think about it, you know? It's, it's a song. It's not Shakespeare, you know. The only way you can tell the song is worth anything is maybe 40, 50 years' time if you're dead, right, you know. How many songs are going to be remembered? How many June Bride songs or Smith songs will be remembered? Probably quite a few, but, but maybe maybe less than you might think, you know. 
and, and already Morris is doing a very good job of, I mean, it's really, a real strange thing. You really like Smiths, you really like Johnny Marr, but, but you can't like Morrissey, right? Well, you know what? I'm not I'm not buying into that. Morrissey's a prick man, right? But his song, the songs are still really good songs, you know? You, you can't, you know, it's like, I'll tell you a really, a really sad story for me. Guy Glitter, right? Pedophile. He didn't write those songs. Another guy wrote them as well. So that other guy there makes no money whatsoever, right? Nothing. He didn't do anything wrong, right? We can't play a guy glitter record. What about the other six guys in his band? You know, what about the other guys like Mick Leander who wrote the songs and produced them? So he doesn't get, he's completely, you know, you know, guilty by association. I don't think it's fair, man, you know? Well, I did an interview with Lawrence Myers, who was the guy who, I suppose, engineered and managed Bowie in the hunky-dory period and sort of set up that whole world of main, main man and Tony Caprice. And he said he, yeah. he worked with, you know, Gary Glitter. And in fact, you know, Gary, the success of Gary sort of bought him, I think he said, his house. But then, you know, he's like, well, you know, you can't help that. You know, you, you didn't know at the time what was going to come next. So... You can't really, you know, it's like I always laugh at, you know, Gary, I wanted to be in Gary's gang when I was 10 because, you know, it was just, they were great anthems. And like you said, the, the, musicians in, the musicians in his band, especially the, the percussion and drumming, was stunning. You know, you couldn't fault it at all. But obviously the band, yes, there's just, they must have just went, oh, that's a bit of a, you know, because they must have felt really excited when they came back in the 80s or 90s when they were on the university and, circuit and playing Christmas parties and thinking, well, this is going to pay the rest of the year's mortgage off and, and electricity for and, well, and uh, so yeah, his co-writers because I mean some of the songs are great. You think, you know, remember me this way is a great song, but that the other guy won't get a penny anymore, you know. So <laughs> this is true. And did you, I mean with your, you know, it's quite interesting you you sort of work with Craig because he's he's gone on to work with the Smiths and then he's gone to work on Work with Alan White now, who used to be. The yeah, I was just talking to him the other day. There, I was talking to him the other day. He's in good form. Yeah, we're going to work, work together again soon. So that's that's all all very good. And have you um seen you know with your co sort of community of people that you grew up in with grew up in uh, Glasgow with? Yeah, most of them. <laughs> all of them. <clears throat> Yes, have you still, are you still, yeah, I just wondered if you were still in touch with them and every, because mostly, you know, everyone has that moment, they go off, they do the exciting things, it's all up and down and being, and then you sometimes come back and sort of go, blimey, that was a bit of a weird world, we've just been no, in the world I've seen them all. play golf with Skin from Hipsway and used uh, to play a lot with Johnny from Texas and now he's, well, he was all the images at the time. Like I said, I work with Postcard, all, all my band are, the band we've got now is 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 asked Camel from Aztec Camera, you know, um work with him and James James Kirk was in the band for a long time. So it, it we're all we, we see each other all the time, you know. Yes. So does that mean with the bluebells, is this the that the is this the band that you just talked about? Yeah. Is this, does this mean that you've got material that you're gonna be bringing out again with possible live dates? Well we we do like this all the time, you? but obviously because of COVID, but we've got a new, we're going to start a new album yet, for definite, and we'll probably, we're talking to Tim Burgess, hopefully we'll be doing Kendall Collin this year with, with him, you know. But uh, I did, I did a, I've got other bands too, I'm in a band with Ian Rankin called uh, Best Picture, we played uh, Kendall Collin the last time, and, we, and I'm in another band called Fat Cops, we did Kendall Collin as well, we did a lot of festivals and things, you know. So yeah. that's all. Some- yeah. So when you're writing for yourself or the band, is that quite a different process to when you get a call and you have to do something with another artist? No, no, not really. I mean, the 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 other artists, all, all the other artists I'm working with at the moment will be Texas, you know, and then other bands will be own bands. You know, that's basically what the the where I'm at now. I did, I did the the, the songwriting for hire thing in the '90s. I don't think I would do it again. You know, I think I would. It's if you've got a family, you mean it's great being in LA for for three months, but at the same time too, I've done it. I'd much rather be here and watch my wee boy grow up, you know. Well, absolutely, no. I mean, we all we all have that same. But did you enjoy your LA time? Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) So look, I mean, I mean, she still lives in LA and things, you know, but. 
it's 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 a uh, early early you can't knock it in any way man you know but again you have to you have to be moving you have to know people it's like any city if you go to Elaine with people like Dave Stewart and stuff then you, you're going to be in a different circle from the minute you get there than if you went on your own you know Absolutely. even my publisher Dave was my publisher so he was like um, taking me everywhere. That must have helped that's real. So what if you could have said something or you could say something to an 18 year old self I mean with all the decades and experience you've had I just wondered what that what that would be. Oh I would say buy shares in an apple. <laughs> yeah, I'm I mean, that's I mean those things and also what I would I would do if I was 18 I, I would steal some radiohead songs and write them at 18 before they could get them. You know. <laughs> was that the one band that you thought you were impressed well, just, with? He, he they came to see us a few times when you know when we started off the Bluebells and that whole Oxford little scene. But no, I just love that. I just love uh, that song, No Surprises. I think it's a great song, you know. Yes. And when was the last time you saw um, Alan McGee? Alan McGee, uh, it was, he was, we were supporting the Happy Mondays and he was, he's managing them now. So it was then, that was uh, last year exactly, a year ago exactly. Do you feel like rock and roll survivors? Survivors? No, Alan's great. I mean, um, he's, he's changed, I mean, physically he's changed a lot, you know what I mean? But, but I guess we all have, no, Alan, you can't knock Alan in any way, man. He's, he's, um, He's, he's just a great, lovely guy. Yes, I know. I can I can see you both like tracksuits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He used to have a he used to have a, a whole house full of the same suit, you know, like a wardrobe full of the same clothes. You know, I mean, it, it must be strange for him to like to be suddenly like incredibly wealthy. You know, I guess it's strange for all of us. But I mean, like, I mean, he's I mean, but it's a different level. But uh, I, don't know, I, I don't know. It's like uh, the people who I like. Who who have money are the ones who have the, are having fun with it. The ones, what people, there's a lot of people who've got money and who just get miserable. You know, they don't know how to spend it. You know, just spend it the same way you spend it if you don't have it. You know, yeah. just I mean, just this this there's no I don't know how. You, I mean, Dave Dave's a good example. You know, Dave Stewart's a great example of um, a guy having the best time all the time. You know, so that's what you should. I want to be that guy. I want to be, you know, everyone I know is around about me is, is that guy. You know, we all want to have the best time. You know, we've all, we've always been that since I can remember. You know, and I, when I say the best time, it doesn't mean, you know, getting drunk and falling over and taking drugs. The best time is being with your friends and appreciating them, you know? Yes, absolutely. Though I think you were quoting Spinal Tap there for a moment, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Have a good time all the time. That's my yeah. Advice, Martin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, even the bad times aren't that bad. You know what I mean? Like, it's see, see you've got you keep things perspective. People are dying from COVID. People are losing their parents and their and their families and their brothers. What? Why the fuck are people moaning about it? Stop moaning about lockdowns or how tough it is. Do do your bit to help the people who are suffering. You know, I'm not suffering, but I'll do anything I can to help. The ones who are suffering not suffer and how hard can that be that concept be to grasp i don't i don't get it you know there is no conspiracy there's no secret plan you know people tell you to put a mask on and wash your hands because it's going to keep someone else safe you know that's just, that's that's it but has that been a bit of a, a learning curve because because this whole conspiracy world and the q and all and people who just think that I quite like a good conspiracy. I mean, I like I like all your royal family conspiracies because they're all true. <laughs> <laughs> well, we like JFK, but I think the QAnon and this whole world that has developed in the world of Steve Bannon's and Donald Trump's is a bit different, isn't it? And Pizzagate. Listen, if people were that clever, we wouldn't be in this mess. I mean, it seems someone could plan all these things out. Do you think we'd be in a mess? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You know, I mean, the thing is. It's like, you know, to think that, that, that uh, you know, oh, uh, what do you want to take over the world for? What, what, what would you do with it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm in charge of everything. What, what, what difference would it make to you? I mean, is Richard Branson not rich enough? You know, is the Queen not rich enough? What, what, what would they do with all their money? You know what I mean? Yeah. Right? What, they're going to die anyway. There's no pockets in the shroud. You're going to, I mean, at the end of it all, 
you're the dead leader of the world. You know? This is true. I think it was, yeah, Austin Powers wasn't really about holding the world to ransom. But I think it's, uh, I always remember there was a writer just last thing, Tom Wolfe, who once talked about 9-11 and said, look, I know a lot of these kind of, you know, you know, pe you know people at the higher end of society, and none of them would have been able to, they were never clever enough to plan any of those attacks. It was just, you know, I've met yeah. them and, and they wouldn't have been able to pull that one off. So he had no doubt that it wasn't some sort of great conspiracy. It's quite straightforward, really. Well, I mean, we know, we know that's true. Man. You've got to just look at the IRA in the, in, in the, the 70s, you know, right? You know, they, they did it. <laughs> they did. They, they, it wasn't a government conspiracy, you know. It was a guy in a house making a bomb and putting it in the car and then forgetting or his phone didn't work or forget to make the phone call or give the wrong information, people were getting killed out of stupidity. Yes, no, he couldn't find a phone box. That was, that yeah. was, the, I mean, was, that was the 70s. That's banal. All this stuff is. But what, what is wrong is to think, I'll leave a bomb in a, in a, in a paper, in a, a waste paper bin in Warrington, you know, and I'll... I'll why, why would you think any, in any shape or form that's beaten the government? All that's going to do is kill the two wee boys it, it did kill. You know, I mean, why do, why, I mean I, I'm quite fond of that. I mean, you, you mentioned Kennedy. I mean, no, if you, why would you target a population instead of target? If you really hate Reagan or, you know, Bush or Trump or the Queen or Thatcher, why do you attack them? You know, why would, why would you know, kill them? family in you know Brighton you know or anywhere win you a battle it didn't did it no. what the battle was blown up Canadian Wharf you know was when you when it, it started attacking you know economic targets is when the British government caved in yes this is true they were very worried anyway look thank you ever so much so do you go by the name what's what's the best way to refer to you by the way any, honestly, any any name I like served the best, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, Dave, let, let us know when you're broadcasting. I'm going to have to shoot up because it is right on my boy to bedtime. Yeah. But, look. Okay. Well, look. Take care. Thank you ever so much for this. It's been brilliant. Nice to meet you. Hope I'll meet you in person one day. Okay. Take care. See you later. You. All the best. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye bye. There you go. We love that last bit. That was me in conversation with the amazingly talented and prolific singer-songwriter. It is Bobby Bluebell, as I said. He does go with other names, but um, you get the gist. A big thank you. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. It's all there. Plus, um, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>